little bit of context. Uh, so if you're familiar with the book of Acts, this is basically the gospel according to Luke part two. Luke, the same guy who wrote the gospel of Luke, wrote the book of Acts. And he was a physician. He was a, a medical professional back 2,000 years ago who became friends. He was converted to Christianity through the Apostle Paul, and then he traveled with the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys, at least his first journey or part of it. And so he is with Paul in Philippi uh, as they are preaching the gospel, seeing people come to faith, and they are, they're gathering a new church in this Roman city. And a lot happens. We're just going to read this one, one passage, and I'll I'm going to touch on the earlier part of the story, but when we pick up in verse 25, Paul and Silas, another one of his traveling companions, they've been arrested and they're in prison. So that's where we pick up Acts chapter 16, verse 25 through 34. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them to that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, as we come to your scriptures, uh, we pray, we ask Holy Spirit that you would be at work in our hearts and minds. Lord, speak, speak the words that we each individually and collectively need to hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're in this sermon series. We're actually coming to a close. We'll end this sermon series next Sunday, and then we're going to come back to the Gospel of Matthew, which we left a long time ago, last year before we jumped into the book of Exodus. Um, but this sermon series we're in right now, we call A Beautiful Faith. What we've said is, as we're kind of, in some ways, coming out of the, the, the heavier isolation and quarantine of COVID and are seeking to gather together more and more, you know, as whatever that looks like with the Delta variant and continued limitations. We want to remember that we have been called to a mission. Whether there's a pandemic going on or not, Jesus is at work in the world and he is doing something beautiful. The Christian faith is beautiful and what Jesus is doing in the world is beautiful and he calls us to take part in what he is doing so that we can live beautiful lives, and when we do it together, this is the, the title of today's sermon, we become a beautiful community. Last week in A Beautiful Community, part one, we looked at uh, that idea of being a beautiful community from the inside. What does it look like within 
uh, the community of faith, loving one another, dealing with conflict, forgiving one another. Today we're looking at what it means to be a beautiful community, Jesus' community, and how that affects people on the outside. outside. So, as I said, our sermon passage takes place within uh, the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul in Acts 16. Now, Paul and Silas, they've been unjustly imprisoned. Why? Well, because they've come to Philippi. They've begun preaching the gospel. They've had some converts, some people who have believed the faith, um, in particular Lydia, uh, a, a wealthy businesswoman in Philippi. Um, and as they're, they're on their way, Paul and Silas, to a prayer meeting where they're going to pray together about God's work, uh, they meet a young girl or a girl of some young age, um, probably not yet an adult, who we're told has a spirit of divination. What does that mean? Well, in some sense, she was demon-possessed. There was a, a spirit inside of her that gave her the power to basically tell the future in some way or do fortune-telling. Uh, that she could, through the power of that spirit, tell you things that no one else knew or reveal things about your life or your future that you didn't know. And she was a slave. And so she had a couple slave owners, we're told in the chapter, who made a lot of money from this fortune teller. Well, uh, she begins following Paul and Silas around. We don't know why, we're not told. And she begins proclaiming. She's like a herald following them around. And she says, <coughs> excuse me, she says, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Well, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, you've got this uh, maybe known fortune teller, gifted woman in the community who's following them around, proclaiming something that's true. But there's a couple of things we don't know. Well, one thing we know is that we're told that this happened for days, <laughs> days and days. She was just following them around, proclaiming these things. Now, we don't know. This may have had a negative impact. Who knows? But what we are told in chapter 16 is that after a few days of this, Paul got greatly annoyed. He became greatly annoyed. And so he turned to this girl. He rebuked the spirit and cast the spirit out of her, and the spirit left. Now, in a lot of ways, this mimics Jesus' own ministry of the casting out of demons. And, and the casting out of demons for Jesus was a sign of the coming kingdom that when God's kingdom was restored, demon possession and the, the dark forces in the spiritual realm would be done away with. And so Paul's ministry here mimics that of Jesus' ministry. But what happens? Paul has actually done a great and loving act. He's freed this woman from demon possession, and yet her owners, right, the, the slave girl's owners, they are enraged. Their meal ticket has been punched. It no longer works. And so they find out what happened these are influential, probably wealthy men in the community, and they have Paul and Silas arrested. And as was not uncommon, right, this was not, well, this happens in our country, but even more so back in the day, uh, Paul and Silas were arrested. They were beaten. They were thrown into prison, and in fact, we're told they were sort of thrown into the prison inside the prison, like the deep prison, the maximum security prison, and they were put in stocks, which are these things that separate your legs, these wooden uh, things that make it so you can't run and also you can't sit comfortably. So they were basically just in suffering. 
for, for really doing, doing nothing wrong. In fact, helping this young woman and going about preaching the gospel. Um, in fact, this is what the men, so the men were told they're, they're upset about losing their livelihood, and yet when they have Paul and Silas arrested, they go to the magistrates and they say, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept and practice. And, so, and then we're told the crowd joined in attacking them. So there's a lot going on here, right? Paul and Silas are being singled out for what they're doing, preaching the gospel, but also being Jews. And at this time, the Jews were, were not a favored people by the Romans. And so it was kind of easy to say, oh, they're, they're Jews. We can just do away with them. One question we'll come back to is that Paul himself is actually a Roman citizen, and that, that is an important factor in, in the later story. So here we are. Paul and Silas have been beaten, <laughs> thrown in prison, all of this unjustly without real warrant. And yet what do we read in verse 25, the first verse of our sermon passage? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, in the, uh, and the prisoners we're listening to them. Now think about yourself as I think about myself. You're going about God's work, proclaiming the gospel. Someone comes and, and tells a lie about you. You are beaten and thrown in prison. What would you be doing about midnight? I don't know if I would be praying and praising God. I would probably be weeping and feeling a lot of self-pity. Why is this happening to me? How dare you do this to me? God, what is going on? Aren't we doing your work? So what is different about Paul and Silas in this moment? Well, in a word, we're, this is what we're going to unpack here. Their lives were grounded upon, and they were seeking to imitate Jesus. Jesus. And I think this, this passage is incredibly relevant for where we are. We are in a world that is suffering. Many of us are suffering. I, <laughs> I know I'm feeling a lot of self-pity these days. I'm feeling a lot of temptation to uh, despair. When I look at the world, when I look at my neighborhood, when I look at my own life, I'm seeing more and more op-ed pieces and, and Christian blogs about dealing with the hardship of life. And so I think, it's, I think it's crucial, I think it's important for us to look at our, our fathers and mothers in the faith who are suffering and yet are able to sing in prison. Okay. And here's the key. The church becomes a beautiful community when it begins to look like Jesus. We said this last week. The church becomes a beautiful community when it learns to look like Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul and Silas are doing. They are reflecting, they are imitating, and they are standing upon the strong foundation of Jesus. Um, five, five brief points here. How, does, how do Paul and Silas look like Jesus? Well, first, their lives are shaped by love. Their lives are shaped by love. Why, why are Paul and Silas and Luke and the others, why are they in Philippi? Because they want to preach the gospel. They want to see others come to know the God of the universe who made them the Lord Christ, who died for their sins so that they would be freed from the condemnation of sin and know the joy of salvation. 
They're here in love. They're obeying God's call and command on their lives. <coughs> Secondly, you know, we're told that Paul was annoyed by this, this demon-possessed girl, and yet that was an act of love there. Not just sending her away, not just berating her, but freeing her from that bondage. And third, we don't have time to go into it today, but, but we do, if you know the context, we have to ask the question, why didn't Paul play his Roman citizenship card here at this moment before he was beaten? If he had simply cried out and said, hey, 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 I'm not just a Jew, I'm a Roman citizen, things would have stopped, and yet he was silent. And if you do, if you look into this passage, you'll see that the most likely reason was Paul's love and care for this newborn church. If he had played that Roman citizenship card immediately, people would have associated this false narrative, this lie about what Paul and Silas were doing with their gospel proclamation and with this church. And so most scholars believe that Paul was silent so as not to associate this lie with the church. So in essence, Paul was suffering in silence out of love for the church, just like Jesus. And so we can ask ourselves the question, as we go about our day, as you go about your day today, tomorrow, are you seeking to walk in God's will and are you motivated for, by love for the people around you and for the church? Second, notice how Paul's grip on reality shapes his behavior and his attitude. To me, this is, this is a huge point. Notice how Paul's grip on reality shapes his behavior and his attitude. We asked earlier, how can Paul and Silas be singing hymns of praise to God and praying in prison while they are unjustly placed there and beaten? Well, the reason is because they knew and they were living in light of the fact that Jesus, their Lord, was enthroned in heaven above. Paul knew, this was the heart of his gospel, that Jesus, the Son of God, had died for the sake of his people, and yet he was the king. Not just the king of the Jews, but now the king of the whole universe. And he was enthroned above heaven and above earth. And all things that happened, that came to him, came, even at the hands of evil and wicked people, came under the sight and watchful eye of his loving Savior. Right? Paul would, would write this later in Romans chapter 8. He says, All things must work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He's, he's writing that some years after this event. And he's expressing, he's shaping how he views the world. If Jesus is enthroned above, nothing happens to his people that doesn't come under his watchful eye. Evil never takes the upper hand. In all things, Jesus is able to shape for the good of his church, for the good of his kingdom, and for the good of his people. And so Paul, even in this place of injustice, he's able to sing because he knows that as he follows Jesus' model of suffering, pattern of suffering, so he will follow Jesus' pattern of resurrection. That the God who has allowed us to be here unjustly imprisoned will be justified, will be resurrected, will be given new life. In fact, interestingly, <coughs> excuse me, 
Paul later wrote a letter, right, to the church in Philippi. He wrote that letter probably 10 years after these events from another prison cell. (laughs) It's kind of funny to think about. Paul spent a lot of time in prison. Not, not sort of what we think of with, for, a, for a Christian, um, you know, someone we look up to. But he was in a prison in Rome, and he wrote in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, he said, I want you to know, Philippians, that what has happened to me, being imprisoned, has really happened to, the, to serve the advance of the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial, imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Again, Paul reflects this idea, hey, I'm imprisoned, (laughs) this is not right, I haven't broken any laws, and yet even here in prison I can see God at work. How would it change your life? How would it change your attitude when suffering and hardship comes into your life if you remembered each day that Jesus is enthroned above and nothing comes into your life apart from his sovereign will. Okay, third, notice that God is the one, as we just said, who vindicates and saves Paul and Silas from this unjust treatment. God sends an earthquake. Now, for those of us who read the scriptures and are are kind of aware of the way Luke writes, it's obvious that, that this is God at work. We're told details like the foundations of the prison were, were, were shaken, the doors are open, the bonds are loosened or, or fall off. This is like an incredible earthquake. In fact, we're told later, if you notice, that the jailer, the, the soldier, takes Paul and Silas to his home and cleans up their wounds. Why? Because probably a bunch of debris fell on them. This was a radical earthquake. The jailer thought everyone had escaped. But whereas we, most people today, we look at, you know, natural disasters as sort of just physical, random events. Well, let me read this quote from Paul Miller from that book, The J-Curve. He says, Because of our 18th century enlightenment, because of the 18th century enlightenment, we think of disasters as purely physical events. But the ancients lived in an integrated universe where the physical and the spiritual worlds were intertwined into a moral whole. This earthquake exposes the false narrative of Paul Paul and Silas being troublemakers. The entire city now knows that Paul's God has shamed the magistrates. They put him in jail, but his God has released him and justified him. Again, we get to see here that as Paul, in a sense, accepts this unjust treatment, he doesn't He's not banging on the door. He's not calling for his lawyer. He's not playing his citizenship card. He entrusts his life to the Father. So as he follows Jesus' example down into death, he entrusts his future to God to resurrect him on the other side. It's really amazing, and I I think it should cause us to pause And think about we, as 21st century Americans, how much we seek to seize control of our lives, control our present and our future. Rather, Paul, and before him, Jesus, shows us that the Lord is the one who justifies us. 
You see, Paul couldn't change the minds of the Philippians. He couldn't fight the narrative of these slave owners or the magistrates. They were the ones in power. He could have used all his energy to try to defend himself, and yet he didn't. But God could in a way that only he could. So think about it. How much energy do we, do you, expend seeking to control your life, the lives of the people around you, parents? How much do we seek to control our children? (laughs) And yet, what peace and joy did Paul and Silas experience? How different are they than, than the way we typically live our lives? Anxious, worried, looking into the future, trying to do whatever we can. They lived under the reign of Jesus. And so what would it look like in your life to let go a little bit of control, to live in light of Jesus' enthronement and entrust your life to a Father who has promised to give you what you need and to work through you? in the lives of others. That leads us to our fourth point. Notice how God works through Paul and Silas's faithfulness. What do you think would have been the result if they were in prison and they were just shouting about the injustice done to them? Yet they were singing, and and we're told even in the first verse, verse 25, they were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening. God was at work in their patience. God was at work in their sufferings. What do you think the other prisoners or the soldiers were thinking as they watched these men? What are they doing? These, they're not cursing their jailers. They're filled with joy. Why didn't the prisoners escape? Well, we, we don't know, but... But when his jailer, when this soldier is about to kill himself, which was normal, if you you were duty-bound as a Roman soldier to protect the prisoners and keep them imprisoned, if they had escaped, it was expected that he would take his own life. So he is literally having a near-death experience. For some reason, all the prisoners are, are still present. And to his jailer, rather than letting him take it, take his own life because he deserved it, Paul cries out, no, we're all here. Do not harm yourself. And of course, then we see this magical moment. The jailer almost died. He runs and falls on his knees before Paul, and he says, what must I do to be saved? You've been singing about this Lord that allows you to worship and have joy under incredible beatings and unjust treatment. I want what you have. Listen to this, another quote from Paul Miller. He says that Paul has completely disrupted this jailer's world. Not only has Paul saved the man's life, but he's also shown him a new kind of person, one who forgives, worships, and loves in the face of evil. Brothers and sisters, this is where we join in the mission of God. We live in a world racked with COVID. We live in a world where everybody's on edge, where everyone is suffering. And it's not like we should lie. We don't want to be syrupy, sweet, you know, always thanking Jesus for, you know, all his many blessings. 
But when we can suffer with integrity, when we can suffer in honesty, when we can sing in prison, the people around us take note. They say, what is different about my neighbors, my, these co-workers, this family member? And so again, when we live in light of Jesus' enthronement, that he is in heaven, and we entrust our lives to God, God works powerfully through us in the lives of others. Think, what might God do through you if you were to deepen your faith and lessen your grip on controlling your own life? All right, fifth and finally, uh, notice that Paul is not alone. This brings us to the point of community, a beautiful community. We talked about this last week, that we, as 21st century Americans, we tend to read the Scriptures and conceptualize and imagine the Christian life as individuals, me and God. What is God doing in my life? What is He calling me to? Why am I suffering when we have been called to be the body of Christ, a living community? Yes, God never throws away our individuality. We are each made in the image of God, beautifully, wonderfully made. But what we as Americans need to remember is that we have been called to be part of a community and that we suffer and we celebrate together. One of the saddest and most despicable things of the last two years is how divisive the evil one has become, has made life inside the church. So many churches have been attacked and destroyed you know, we, we hear reports all the time of, of people quitting their jobs for various reasons. Uh, and maybe you've seen these. I see reports all the time of people leaving churches, pastors retiring or quitting their jobs because it's just so hard to be part of the community of faith right now. And brothers and sisters, it's time for us to bond together as the body of Christ suffering together, loving one another together, living out Jesus' model of ministry together. We are called to be a community through which the Father works, out of which we become a light in a dark place. As we said in the beginning, the church becomes a beautiful community when it learns to look like Jesus. So what does Jesus look like? It looks like acting out of love for others, obeying God's commands, remembering that Jesus is enthroned just as Jesus remembered that his Father was enthroned in heaven and trusting him to bring about his good purposes in our lives. It's a willingness to suffer to lose control, to enter and to have the fellowship in Christ's sufferings and trusting the Father to bring resurrection in our own lives and in the life of our community. And when we do that, beloved, when we sing in prison, we become a light in a dark world which our neighbors and our friends will sit up and notice. And through us, God will call others to himself, and we will be a beautiful community. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it is hard to live in this fallen world, and in some ways it feels like it is only getting 
harder. And so, Lord, would you give us a vision of Jesus, a vision of the beauty of Jesus and being his beautiful community. Holy Spirit, would you fill us? Would you lift our eyes to see Jesus, that he is the Lord of the storm, that we can sing in prison? Lord, do your work in and through us, we pray, as we follow Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.